the Buddha distinguished between Sukha Patipada, happy, easy Dhamma practice, and uh, Dukkha Patipada, that is uh, tough, quite difficult. And basically it depends on the strength of the defilements in the person. Someone like Venerable Sabiputta, who due to his past practice in previous lives and had very, very little anger, very, very little delusion, very little desire, passion, aversion, jealousy, and so on. Now for that kind of person, Dhamma practice is just very smooth and easy. And they can focus on the suitable meditation object. And then they will experience gladness and rapture and the body very tranquil. And the mind is blessed out and blessed the mind and unifies in samadhi. Not quite sure how many we have of those. <laughs> I'm not really belonging quite in that category either. And then there's Dukkha Patipada. Interestingly, even the second chief disciple of the Buddha, Venerable Maha Mokalana, belonged to that. So this is that the defilements are relatively stronger. There's more desire, passion, aversion, delusion, jealousy, conceit, fear, and so on. And as a result, obviously, the Dhamma practice is more difficult. It's not so easy, it's not so smooth, it's not always just fun and rapture and bliss. And that manifests generally in life. Obviously, if we have stronger defilements, we tend to get ourselves into trouble. We may do stupid things which have painful results and so on. As someone with very few defilements and then strong ideally in the strong faculties on top of that. They will have often quite a smooth life where everything just flows very easily. I mean, the Sukhapatipada is obviously more pleasant. But on the other hand, if everything flows smoothly, um, people may live sometimes a little bit a mediocre life or they're not really challenged and they may not get interested in Dhamma even. So it's a consolation uh, to all of those who struggle with an unruly mind, uh, who are having difficulties in keeping precepts, and even more so in a particular, you need very few defilements if you easily want to go into samadhi. And most people nowadays struggle a lot with that, and there's a lot of unruly, wandering mind, and all kinds of issues, and all traumas and whatnot coming up. It's quite normal. Nowadays, very, very few people like Venerable put are around. However, it can have an advantage. Because if you want to investigate Dukkha, having some Dukkha is obviously a good starting point. And having some Dukkha is usually also what puts us on the spiritual track, a typical response of experiencing. Uh, a certain amount of dukkha is usually that we are starting to search spiritually. But usually when people come to the monastery and really want to see me, it's not because they will tell me, oh yeah, I'm so happy, Ajahn, everything is fine in my family, my job, my mind. I just want to tell you. 
can't really can't really uh, remember when that happened the last time. They, usually they come and someone has cancer, they lost their job, or the kid is going crazy, or they lost a close loved one. They come because of Dukkha. So don't uh, get despondent if there is lots of Dukkha in your either life or in your formal meditation. Both are usually related anyhow. And if you have lots of Dukkha in life, then there's usually also quite a bit of action and tension in meditation and vice versa. But that means that we can really strain or really apply our wisdom faculty now. And it's easier to see. And if someone is just very calm and peaceful in their meditation, feels good, but there may be very little incentive to really investigate, to use wisdom. And they can sit in a, a long time and there may be not much progress, but it's just nice. On the other hand, if you are turning inside and all this challenging stuff is coming up, and if you keep going with that, you're kind of forced to practice wisdom and insight. And the Four Noble Truths, there's an exact, uh, exactly another white and the categories, the white pattern, the technique that to apply there, are very suitable if you're that kind of person who encounters Dukkha. It's very known that uh, Dukkha Vedana meditation, the focusing on pain, if you don't change the posture for many hours, like Lungta Mahabuan talking about that quite a bit. He had major breakthroughs with that. It can be a very beneficial meditation object because the suffering is so strong that it's not easy to fall asleep while you meditate. It's not easy to just go into some fantasies. But uh, even if you don't do deliberately Dukkha Vedana meditation by not changing your posture so that you're kind of deliberately arouse intense physical pain. Many of us have quite a bit of mental pain, isn't it? And the same thing applies. And you work with that as an excellent opportunity to investigate and apply wisdom. So how do we apply wisdom? We observe, we watch, and we see that suffering comes from craving. You can flip that around, the craving causes suffering. You can investigate in both directions, the causal relationships, they're obviously connected, and you can go in either direction. So once you have got the cause, you can look at what result is it creating. When you have the result, you look at the result, and you investigate where does it come from, what was the cause. And both directions can be looked at, investigated, observed. And uh, you, you can't do that too much, you can't see that too clearly, because we have a long conditioning in this society in particular, and from advertisements to growth ideology and happiness and so on. So countless past lives, and we have this conditioning that craving will make us happy as long as we can satisfy it. This is what the whole advertising industry is usually built on, what the whole the modern capitalist 
market economy, growth economy, materialist economy is built on. And that is quite operative in the back of our mind. We may not even be consciously aware of that, but that is a very deep conditioning. Craving and satisfied, and then you get happy. And of course, that can be deceptive because there is usually some happiness if you can satisfy the craving to start off with. But it comes with huge drawbacks and it never gives real lasting satisfaction. And even if you go to the finest restaurant and have a perfect meal and spend $500 on one restaurant visit, they may feel very good, but where have you got with that? A few hours later and you're hungry again and then you go to Subway and you will be very disappointed when you get there in comparison. It's like that with uh, every kind of central satisfaction, every time we satisfy craving, it only starts burning more and you need more and more to satisfy it. It's like a fire and you can't convince a fire to stop burning by giving it enough fuel. The more fuel it gets, the more it will burn. So we have to watch that, we have to observe that. And if we ever fall into the trap that we follow craving and satisfy it, uh, then we have to investigate and see you know, the drawbacks we are dealing with. We have to see how impermanent it is. And this is not separate between your formal meditation and your life. You can observe it either. You see it in life and you end up being really indulgent. Usually one gets into trouble. You can see it in your meditation. And when you indulge the fantasies, when you indulge the fear scenarios, when you indulge the old grudges, you know, the peace of staying with a meditation object is destroyed and uh, agitation arises in the mind. Or even if it's not agitation, you're just following the fantasy, it feels so good, and then after an hour of meditation, you have the big disappointment, the bell goes, and you realize you have actually increased defilements, you have wasted an hour. And also the other disappointment, the fantasy comes to an end. It's like going to the movies in a fantastic movie, you know, but what does it do to you when you walk out of the movie? You're right back in life and it has nothing, nothing has improved, no problem has been solved and you have to uh, cope with whatever real life is throwing at you. And then the even more important to observe you know, the other direction. Every little act you know, of letting go of craving, every time we succeed to drop something, to let go, and then to notice contentment increasing. And it may not be outright bliss and rapture straight away, but at the very minimum, usually there's an increase in contentment. And contentment is something you know, very uh, valuable, very pleasant, very enjoyable. And again, both in daily life and in our meditation. This image comes up in the mind. 
that memory comes up in the mind, that fantasy comes up. I mean, you have been all meditating, you know what I'm talking about, ne? This image, uh, suddenly, that fantasy, that thought. And it's actually usually not so difficult if one just stops it straight away. Once you're really into that fantasy, ne, it's more difficult, but if one drops it straight away, it's usually good, and then you settle down on the breath. And straight away, in a contentment, sometimes even uh, gladness, and that whole process, gladness, rapture, tranquility, bliss, samadhi, and may, may get triggered. But sometimes it's hard work. Now you have some uh, little trauma coming up, some old grudge, some really deep hurt, some big loss that comes up in the mind. And many times you can't let go. But you try, you investigate, you observe it as impermanent. You look at it, you develop the perception it's impermanent, it's not me, it's not mine, I don't own that as best we can, and at some stage then, if we may have to do that many times, not so successfully, but at some stage the wisdom finally gets a handle, and then we can drop it, at least partially. And if it's a major thing, and we can drop it even partially, and we will immediately notice a tremendous feeling of lightness, tremendous diminishment of pain and misery. So we watch that. The one thing is learning the Four Noble Truths and the abstract. This is very valuable because that is the instruction manual, what we have to do. And if you do know the instructions, you can use a gadget. If it's a complicated machine, a complicated gadget, without instructions, no one can't manage. Some are intuitive enough, and you can just fiddle around a little bit, and uh, okay. But the mind is the most sophisticated and complicated the gadget in the whole universe. And without any instruction manual, just trying to press the buttons here and there, and it will usually not lead to enlightenment. We need the instructions of the Buddha. So it's good not to learn the instructions, to know them, but then, of course, we have to apply them to the gadget, which is our mind. And then we can uh, see it happening, not yet to the full extent. Uh, if we practice, it will take a long time, usually, until the letting go is sufficient that Craving is abandoned to such an extent you know, that uh, the six sense fears cease at least for a moment and Nibbana is seen. But any act of letting go you know, confirms that reconditioning process. And for the Sotapanna, you know, for someone who has seen the Dhamma, who has seen Nibbana, this is the reason that they are completely on the track. They are the real seekers. They are really in training. They are really on the path. Because that is such a strong confirmation that they have seen a very profound letting go and then Nibbana. And after that, your normal lifelong conditioning process will have been kind of reset. That is so powerful. 
that now in the default position is always to work for letting go. They may not be able to do it completely yet, for full Nibbana, but by now the default position is that, and they will work for that. Uh, before that, now our default position is still to follow craving. And it requires now, this strong mindfulness, it requires that strong determination and persistence not to always steer against. Uh, that's what the Buddha meant by you know, going against the stream of craving. It's like paddling up against the stream. That natural instinctive programming you know, to follow desire, to satisfy it. And it has to be countered by wisely seeing that it will get us deeper into suffering. With anger, that is usually easier to see. Anger is usually immediately painful. The moment we indulge in anger, no one can notice it's, it's, it's kind of painful, unpleasant. But one needs stronger wisdom to see it with uh, desire, passion, because it can feel very nice. So we have to really go in there and see the ordinary, the danger, very clearly. We have to see that it's impermanent. We have to see that it cannot give lasting happiness. We have to show that our mind. We have to, even just thinking about it, is also a form of meditating. Really thinking and showing that Adinava to our mind, that danger. And the result of that is that we don't follow the craving anymore, that we go to the opposite of letting go of craving. Chago Patinisanko Muti Analeyo to abandon it, to throw it away, to relinquish it, to forfeit it. Freedom, release, liberation from craving. And then very important that whenever we succeed with that, even in small steps to look at the result. This is usually not even a the acid test, you know, the confirmation you know, that we are not just doing mental gymnastics, not just thinking in the abstract, but if we truly see something as not me, not mine, impermanent, well, then we will let go to some extent. If we will let go to some extent, well, then there must be some form of diminishment of dukkha. There must be an increase of contentment, of ease, That can be very subtle, so it's important to see it, to have that mindfulness. Now, that is what you train when you have the formal meditation, that you can see you know, the little acts of letting go you know, leading to small diminishment of dukkha. Not yet a really big one. Now, often these things come up in the mind again and again, and the letting go is only a little bit, little bit. But over time, you know, repeatedly, it gets deeper and deeper, and even maybe more important than this, the reconditioning. Even if it's only a little bit of letting go and a little bit less dukkha, that is still sufficient to recondition us. We notice that is a track to go, letting go of craving, not following it. Okay, so far my little uh, reflections on for Noble Truth today on Nasala Puja. My Anamodana, that there's quite a number of people here for the afternoon meditation. How many of you were here already at 
8.30. Quite? Oh yeah, quite a number. Good, good, yeah. This is how you start the vasa. And if you continue like that, you will recondition yourself to let go of craving more and more. Is there any comments or questions? Yeah, very good question. As someone points out, when they meditate one hour a day in lay life, uh, no pain, they can handle it easily. On a one-day uh, retreat, like today, with a number of sittings, you know, there may be severe pain in the end. There's basically two approaches of handling it. Now, if you uh, don't want to do outright pain meditation, then you have to change your posture and do more walking or sit uh, on, on a on a chair or on this couch there, so that you don't really have any stronger pain. If it's a little bit discomfort, you usually can overcome it by focusing on your meditation object and there may be enough happiness and contentment that you don't notice a little discomfort. That is one way of dealing with it, basically kind of avoiding that pain by not sitting too long, by doing more walking meditation, by maybe sitting on a stool or a chair, in your case, I notice the knees are quite high, so so that w- there will be pain after some time no? if if the knees are in that. There's obviously uh, tension on the knees. There will be pain. The other option you have no, is to deliberately take the pain as a meditation object. If you want to keep going with your anapana, or your metta, or your contemplation of the Buddha, and you have strong pain, it will be very difficult. So you can then choose to make the pain itself the meditation object. And of course, for investigating Dukkha, pain is obviously a great one. You know straight away what the Buddha is talking about. There's no doubt. If you are having, say, a little bit of laziness, lack of awareness, sleepy, hazy in meditation, very difficult to see the Dukkha in that. If you have some fantastic memory or fantasy and you just go with it, not so easy to see the Dukkha in that. But with the pain, it would be pretty pretty obvious. And then the next step is craving. Now how does craving usually manifest regarding physical pain? Yeah, you want to get rid of it. You want to Abandon it, you hate it, you don't like it, you have no patiga, the Buddha calls it in Pali. There's this resistance, you don't want it, and you want to get rid of it. However, have you ever, I mean, with a posture, you can just decide at some stage to change the posture, and then you can satisfy the craving of getting rid of the pain. But if you have determined that you continue sitting, no, you can't. Or if you have a pain condition, some people have strong physical, sometimes chronic pain conditions. That option isn't there. And you will notice if the option isn't there, at least until you finish your determined sitting time, this is a lot of suffering if you have a strong craving to be rid of the pain. That is sometimes the worst. 
the moment when you say, no, no, I can't take it anymore. I have to get rid of that. It then becomes unbearable, kind of. I'm not sure whether you know what I mean. Have you been at that point? You say, okay, no, this is now enough. If you have a flu or something, no, you're okay, and then at some stage, no, this is too much. I don't really, I don't want that anymore. But the pain doesn't listen to that, and it's still there. And then you can see you know, how this strong craving to get rid of the pain creates this tremendous mental pain. This is a way you can investigate the here and now. The physical pain is also dependent on craving. Because if you didn't have a body, would you have that physical pain from sitting? Have you ever heard from Bachmas complaining about painful knees? Now you need this human body for that kind of pain. And you have got that human body because of craving. Else you wouldn't be in a human body made out of flesh and blood and all kinds of impurities. This is the central craving which gets us into this disgusting thing. If you look at it, it's so disgusting and we still get caught into it. But that one is obviously a little bit difficult to see here and now. It would require much more, more difficult to see. But the mental aspect of the pain, the aversion against the pain, and then that creating this mental despair, I can't take it anymore, and it's too much, and it's unbearable, and why me and others can sit for hours without pain, and this stuff that you can observe excellent right here and now. And although you cannot drop the physical pain, if you drop the aversion, the mental part will just go. And then the physical pain is much easier to endure. And that is for the heroes really going into pain meditation. If you normally have feeling your anapanasati in the breath meditation is going quite well, or your loving kindness is going well, then it may be a better strategy and to reduce the pain to a level of discomfort that it doesn't distract from your main meditation. And that can usually be achieved if you swap posture slightly after half an hour, if you do more walking meditation. A certain amount of discomfort is usually unavoidable in the human body if you meditate a lot, unless you have really got samadhi. Okay, any other last chance? Five o'clock. Let's share merits with all beings. The more you suffer, the more you have to share now, because the more merit is still making it through it all. Now let's chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue. Yeah.
spirits of the earth and the Lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all heartful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve the Buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma the solitary 